0: okay let 's go ahead and uh, pray, and we 'll get started with our study here this evening heavenly father we 're thankful that you are God who warns us, and uh, we 're in need of warning and admonition uh, We are at times uh, thinking that we are self sufficient and and oftentimes self righteous when we really ought to be uh, careful about ourselves more so than it is we are about others and so Lord, as we're challenged uh, by this uh, parable this evening, may we recognize that uh, we all have the tendency to think that we're okay in comparison to everybody else, and and help us to see the the danger of that. We love you, we thank you for your Son who came into this world to reveal things like this, and we praise you in His name. Amen. Luke chapter 13. Uh, If you go ahead and turn there, this is the parable of the fig tree in the vineyard. You. I say why in the vineyard because there is a parable of the fig tree, too, that's um, a very short one that we really didn't deal with because it's just kind of a one sentence statement. <clears throat> but as we go into this, uh, I want us to just uh, read through this as a very short parable. But once again, you have to be reminded whenever you go to a parable, you read it look at the context around. I mean, this is not magic when the pastor comes and he, you know, hey, this is what it means. Um, He's looking at the context surrounding. And so with this one, very clear context beforehand that directs your attention to where the parable is probably headed uh, when the Lord finally tells it. And it starts this way, Luke chapter 13, they were present at that season. Now we have to stop for a second. At that season, you go, what? Well, Jesus is doing all sorts of things. Last week, he was warning about covetousness, and he had people conf- uh, combating him, that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub. And in the midst of this, you suddenly have people come up and do this. Okay, so here's what happens. There was, were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pontius Pilate had mingled, mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? And he gives the answer that they don't expect. I tell you, nay, no, Uh, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam uh, fell and slew them, uh, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. In the midst of this, uh, Jesus doing all these things, people come up with this report. Now, most in reading this probably don't think it, that it it's just happened, and they're running up and going, oh, did you hear this? It's kind of like us talking about the news a day or two later with people, and, you know, did you see what happened and whatever, and, you know, we discuss opinion-wise. More than likely, this is what's happened here. This is not Jesus is receiving new news about this. Uh, but what you have here, and your blank there gives this to you, you have an, an intentional atrocity, okay? Someone planned this. Uh, it wasn't an accidental from a human standpoint. Somebody from a human side planned this, and they did this. And you say, well, what happened? Well, the Galileans were typically thought of as rabble-rousers, Okay, they were not uh, in the main city of Jerusalem where all the business of Israel supposedly took place. Uh, They were in the backwater area and they were the ones who caused the problems. Even when you get to the revolt some 30 years later, they're the ones who started up. uh, And so they they tend to be uh, the ones who are plotting and doing things like this because they aren't in tune with what's going on in Jerusalem. They don't like the people in the city and whatever. And... And so what happened is that you had some Galileans who came, were offering uh, sacrifices or coming to offer sacrifice in the temple. And uh, we have some reports uh, in history um, from Josephus and others that Pilate did this on a regular basis where he would dress up uh, his soldiers as regular travelers at some of these different festivals and they would come in. And if they thought somebody was a rabble rouser of some kind, that they would uh, then all of a sudden rough them up. Get them before they cause any problems. And this was not uncommon. It was a tactic that he regularly used, but on this occasion, uh, it was more than just roughing them up. He actually ends up killing some of these individuals. Now, think about this. They have come to do something good. Good. They've traveled a long distance. They've traveled the, the two or three day journey to come down from Galilee to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple, and they're murdered. And in Jews' mind, this is what immediately would happen. Uh oh, those Galileans that just died must have been really bad people. That's how it automatically ran. In, in contrast to what we had last week, and we have this in that, that second paragraph, the people's thinking showed a misunderstanding of good and evil, or blessings and cursings. The thinking in the previous parable was that God's blessing was a sign of a person's righteousness. Remember last week we talked about beware of covetousness, and then you had the parable of the rich farmer, uh, and this, and what Jesus had in the, the, the was attacking the mind of the Jews that riches meant that you were right with God. And an overabundance of it meant that you were really righteous with God. And that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes people who are rich are very wicked. That's the struggle of Psalm 73. Uh, When you read that and the psalmist there goes, my foot almost slipped as I watched how they were having a grand time and all their riches. And I was thinking, was it worth it to serve God? But you have the, the flip side of this on the other side, When you have this, that sometimes there was a thing, the thinking here was that God's curses were a sign of a person's wickedness. The people who died in the middle of religious worship must have been very bad sinners. That that's the automatic assumption. This isn't new. You go, how do you know this? Well, go to one of the oldest stories in our Bible, and some call it the oldest book in our Bible. But you know what book I'm talking about? And it's not Genesis. Job. Job, Job was a contemporary, probably, of Abraham, and realized that, <clears throat> well, Moses wrote that book uh, about Genesis uh, about 600 years after Abraham. It seems like Job was written about that time, but the whole purpose of that story starts off where God has told Satan, here's a man who uh, eschews evil, he shies away from evil, and he does right towards his fellow man and does right towards God, and he does these things, Uh, and so it's God's commentary on him. This is a good man. But if you were to take that context out right from the beginning and look at Job's very, 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 very bad, no good day, He loses everything, loses all of his goods, his supplies, his transportation, his wealth, and all of his children, all in one day. You just go, nobody has that kind of, from our perspective in the world, bad luck. And the rest of the book is Job's friends coming to him and going, what did you do wrong? You know, what did you do wrong did you know did you do this did you do this did you do this and you go why are they doing that because they're sitting there going if job was what we thought to be the best person we knew and he was very wealthy and rich and this suddenly happened to him we better find out what that sin is so it doesn't happen to us we don't want god's judgment like that i mean that book was a his friends are assuming he's done something wrong when that's not the case it's not that bad things happen only to bad people you get to the new testament and you have jesus and his disciples the same problem you might want to write this somewhere next to this uh, john 9 1 and 2 it's a story where Jesus' uh, disciples are walking through jerusalem and here's this blind man that's there and they they this is the statement they make did this man sin or his parents that he was born blind I mean, these are followers of Jesus that are with them all the time and hear this stuff. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it may have come after this parable too. Uh, and timescale, but they assume the fact that someone had done wrong for him to to, to never have eyesight. <clears throat> you even have this kind of assumption when you get to uh, Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven, you have the hall of faith. Hey, you have faith, great things happen. And if you have faith, uh, you're going to see incredible things. And in fact, you get to the end of the list there, and some people saw the quenching of fire, lines of mouth stopped, the, 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 uh, the causing to go to flight, the army of the aliens or the, the foreign armies that were there. Uh, and they see all these things. And then, then you have this thing that doesn't quite go if you believe that only good things happen to good people. Because it says, some by faith lived in dens and caves, clothed in animal skins, and some of them were sawn asunder, cut in half. And you kind of go, well, wait a second, they had faith, so that means good things should happen to them. And that's, you're going, no, no, sometimes people who are people of faith are the ones who go through unexplainable, you know, inexplicable disaster from a human standpoint. And we just think that way. It's human nature to think like this. And you have probably thought this way sometimes. And so Jesus is dealing with this because here these people come and go, oh, did you hear about those Galileans? And the respected response, expected response of Jesus is to go, yes, you're right, but you see in that third parable, Jesus voiced their assumption do you think these people are really bad sinners? And I'm I'm guessing because of the delay here, he he just kind of stops and lets them get, you know, the answer in their mind. And then he says, no. But except you perish, or except you repent, you shall likewise perish. What he does is that he is warning them that if they didn't repent of their own sins, whatever they may have been, you know big small okay all sins in the sight of God are still on the same scale but you know from a human perspective big small sins you need to repent of those because you'll likewise perish and you don't know when Jesus is trying to go okay yes you you see these events going around you but there needs to be an application to yourself and go okay what do i need to learn from that and it's this you need to be ready at any time to meet your maker to meet your judge. And what Jesus then does is he goes on and gives a second illustration. and this one you have there in that paragraph, Jesus brought up another event in Jerusalem. It was, an, and I put it this way, it was the incidental accident, okay? So you had the intentional atrocity, someone who's planning the, the hurt of somebody else, but here you're just kind of going, eh, it's an everyday, you know, sunny day out, great day, whatever, and all of a sudden these people die. You know, what happens there? Well, uh, the Tower of Siloam, um, more than likely at the southern edge of Jerusalem was where the Pool of Siloam was. It was downhill. It was where all the water collected. This is where uh, the Jews would go and get their water because there was both water that would run into this and fresh water that would be pouring into this. So it was a water source there. And somewhere around there, a wall collapsed, or a tower collapsed on 18 people. It could have been workers. We're not told. It could have been people just passing by. We're not told. But people would have known about this and said, yeah, that was totally unexpected, and they died. And so he goes, do you think those people are greater sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem, that they suddenly, those 18 people died that fashion, that day, when that wall collapsed on them? And people are thinking, yeah. And he has to answer them, no. And he says the same thing again. He repeats the same message, "Uh, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish you're not going to be ready. And that idea of perish is not just die. Uh, remember when we read John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. It's talking about eternal judgment, but have everlasting life. And so the Lord is just, he's turning up the notch on his listeners because they're kind of going, they're coming and going, hey, look, those people did really bad things. You know, that's why they died like this. And Jesus is going, you're Got the same problem of sin. They died. They may have been prepared. They may not have been prepared. But you need to be prepared. So this is where the point where Jesus then goes into the parable. And this parable that he tells uh, has some overtones to it that the Jews would have been familiar with. But I want us to go ahead and just read this parable uh, that he gives to them right away. Verse 6, he spake this parable unto him or excuse me, let me back up. He spake also this parable A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it, fertilize it. Uh, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And it just tells us he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath day. So he's in uh, one of the, probably the regions of Galilee when he tells a story. Now this parable has overtones that any of the Jews that have any familiarity with the book, of, or with the book of Isaiah, will suddenly recognize. The Lord is playing off of that theme. It's from Isaiah, and you have the blank here. Isaiah chapter five, verses one through seven. And I want us to turn back to this one because this will—you read this, and you'll suddenly go, "Ooh, sounds like some of the very same things." Um, Not exact in the details, but it has, we might say this, echoes of this story. Verse 1 says this This is God speaking through Isaiah. Now will I sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well beloved had a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard." "'What could have been done more to my vineyard "'that I have not done in it? "'Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought, forth it wild, it "'brought it forth wild grapes. "'Now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. "'I will take away the hedge thereof. "'It shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof, "'and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste, "'and it shall not be pruned nor digged, "'but there shall come up th- briars and thorns.'" I will also command the clouds that rain no more upon it. And then, verse seven, you want to know what the interpretation is? He gives it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Here you have a, a story of a vineyard. Okay, wall set up around it, stone's taken out so the crop can grow better. Uh, You have it placed in there, it's taken care of. There's a tower put in the middle of the vineyard. You go, why is that? Uh, For a person to sit there and make sure that wild animals aren't going through and eating all the grapes. Um, And uh, this one has received all the attention that you would expect a vineyard to have, and it brings forth fruit, and it's not fruit that is supposed to be there. It's the fruit of wild grapes. See, this is for the nation of Israel. What else could God do for a nation? Here this is written some 700 years after God had brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He had brought them into a pleasant land, a land that flowed with milk and honey, and drove out the enemies of Israel before them so that they could dwell there. And you find the statement, they dwelled in houses they hadn't built, they had vineyards that they hadn't had done anything on, they had farms that they hadn't done anything to, and they were suddenly theirs. And God put them in this land and just simply said this, you have claimed that I would be your God, so now be my people. I've done these things for you. And you have 700 years of history where the nation of Israel continuously is not bringing forth fruits of righteousness towards God. They're bringing forth wild grapes. They're not looking to the God who set them in the land. They're looking at the gods around them of other nations, and going, wow, th- th- those gods are more creative than our God. Their God has more entertainment than our God does. Their God, you know, and, and the nation of Israel just keeps, uh, you read it over and over again, they do this, but it just gets, the cycle gets worse and worse. Until you get to this point where the nation of Israel is uh, filled with idol-worshiping people, the nation is watching the, the uh, armies of Assyria take out the ten northern tribes, and what Isaiah is saying is, okay, I've done everything I can for you, Judah and Jerusalem, but yet you're still bringing forth wild grapes. He even rescues them, I mean, in this time, he rescues them from the army of Syria. uh, Assyria, excuse me. So what would you expect God to do for a group of people who don't do the things that he's asked them to do and he's blessed them tremendously? I mean, what would you do? Listen, I'll take them out and put somebody else there. And that's what he did for 70 years. He took them out, took them someplace else, gave the land to rest for 70 years, uh, and then started bringing them back piece by piece back to the land. So the Jews were familiar with this, the idea of a vineyard and a plant in the vineyard that wasn't bringing forth the fruit that it was supposed to bring forth. So when you go back to Luke chapter 13, and they hear this story, they're going, oh, a vineyard. You know, hinting at the nation of Israel again. And in this vineyard, you have a fig tree that's planted there. You have vines and other things, but you have this fig tree that's in the place of a vine that could actually be uh, producing grapes, but you have a fig tree there. And this man comes out, and he is looking for the fig tree to produce fruit. But understand, with a fig tree, it takes about three years from planting for it to bring forth fruit so when he says here three years you know i've done things with this it's the third year i've done everything i can for it it's not bringing forth anything and the gardener that's there goes, well, let's give it another year. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, if we give it another year, do some extra stuff with it, uh, take care of it, prune some things, uh, drop some fertilizer there, uh, water it some more, that type of thing, that it'll bring forth fruit. But if it doesn't, it needs to be cut down. The <clears throat> fig trees you have at the bottom of the page was given three years as normal time for fig tree to grow. However, the owner came expecting fruit who's angered at the fig tree, demanded to be cut down. Keeper of the vineyard, top of the page there, asked for more time to see fruit. Another year or two would be good. The keeper would work over the roots and see if something could be done. However, the fig tree would not produce fruit, so it was cut down. Now, you go, what's this a parable for? The Jews would have figured it out. It was about them and the parable was a warning to the jews days or the jews of jesus day they had opportunities to turn from their and here's the blank their self righteousness and ignorance of god they had the privilege of hearing jesus the son of god we call him the son of god and sometimes people go well he wasn't god he was just the son no he's the son of god he is god um <clears throat> And they had the opportunity to hear Him and see His incredible miracles. Some of them experienced this. They should have brought forth fruit during Jesus' ministry, but they did not. Now some connect the three years to how long Jesus' ministry was. It's between three and three and a half years. They figure out how long it is by the number of feasts that they have, or feast of uh, Passover that Jesus celebrates. They figure that out. So it's about three and a half years. They have three years to bring forth fruit as a nation to go, this is our Messiah. He's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to follow him. He's calling us to repent from our sins, uh, and to, to put those aside. And they have the opportunity to see the Son of God, and they go, we don't want him. And some have suggested by this parable that it's that when the nation of Israel rejects Jesus, they're still given more time. In fact, what you have in your notes there is this they were not immediately judged. Okay, it wasn't when they said, We have no king but Caesar, crucify him. You know, right then and there, they made their choice, <sniffs> cut them off. They brought forth fr- no fruit that was good. But what you have is that they have more time to repent. As a nation, they continue to reject Jesus and the gospel of his followers. Okay, his, his followers are going around preaching the gospel, and you read the book of Acts, Acts 1 through 8, and you have a major portion of what goes on there. In fact, everything that goes on there, for the most part, happens in Jerusalem. And you have thousands of people coming to Christ. And so that should have been an indicator God's doing something. And they're seeing miracles and they're hearing this message about Jesus who died. It doesn't change them. Acts chapter 8, you got Paul who's leading this out, who's stomping on the Christians uh, is he wherever he can find them. And so the Christians run and leave Jerusalem. They go off to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Jews continue on their course until uh, they get the idea that, yeah, we have no king but Caesar, but we don't like Caesar anymore. (laughs) And they rebel in AD 66, and finally the accumulation of everything is that in AD 70, uh, an emperor by the name of, or a general by the name of Titus who eventually became Caesar uh, comes through and wipes Jerusalem out, uh, knocks it down brick by brick, you go, know, why? Because the temple started burning, this had a temple of Herod that was completely covered in gold, and so the gold started running down in the brickwork and the, the, the plaza that was there, and so they, they just piece by piece were taking these stones and shoving them aside and off the, the sides of the cliff that the temple was on and uh, because they were looking for gold. Nothing left. The area was razed to the ground. I mean, it was just Gone. Took years and years and digging in archaeology, 2,000 years later, to find most of the parts of it. God judged in that day. So understand, uh, He is He. This is immediately for the generation of those people there that this parable is for. Now understand, He didn't wipe out the Jewish people because if He did that then you've got a whole problem when it comes to end-time events because the Lord's supposed to have a nation that he's supposed to come back and rule and reign over. So it's not saying that he wiped everybody out, but this generation was effectively judged by God because they didn't bring forth fruit. The application for us, as you have in the last paragraph, modern readers can also be warned about the need of repentance. Think about the, the privileges you have now. They have privileges of the finished Word of God. I mean, back in Jesus' day, they only had 39 books. Now we've got all 66. And along with the, the, the finished Word of God, we've got God's plan for the ages from beginning to end. It's all there. We know exactly what God's going to do, what the end of mankind is, what the hope of uh, heaven is, and what the possibility of hell is. It's there for people to read. They can read it. And, and you think about this, people have access to this wherever they go. Most people have Bibles in their home. No matter who they are, they probably have a copy somewhere, and if they really want to, they've probably got it on their phone and don't know it. I doubt it, but uh, they'd have to call it up as an app, but they can get it instantaneously and start reading They have access to it anywhere. And we have a generation today that is extremely privileged to have the word of God and the opportunity to see the whole of God's plan. But here's the the application. However, if they don't repent, you know, there there is this attitude that, well, you know, we're blessed in the United States and God's done really wonderful things for us because we're such good people. And bad things only happen to people in like Bangladesh and and places like that, way, way far away. Not Not to us. And the Lord's going, what? Do you think they're greater sinners than you are? Do you think people in Bangladesh and Iraq and Iran and, and the southern portion of Africa or the islands of the Pacific, somehow they're greater sinners than you and, and that you don't really have to prepare for things like this? And so if the Lord was challenging us, he, he would give us the same kind of message. You know, Don't look at other people and go, look at all the calamity that happens to them. You need to be ready by repenting, turning from your sin, turning to God, because you're going to possibly likewise perish. You need to be ready. And so uh, the application, you can make application to today, though we'll say this, the the, the exact application was to that Jewish nation right then and there in Jesus' time, but the, the warning still goes out. You need to worry more about yourself than what other people are doing, worry about your sin and get yourself ready to meet God, not go, oh, look at those people over there. They must have been, no, look at yourself. Uh, Take that mirror that you're reflecting over there and reflect on yourself and take a look uh, and do that. So kind of a, it's one of the, I will say this is with the parables, though he has several that are like this, it's one of the parables that's one of the more tough ones. I mean, it's just very direct and um, in his way of dealing with things. But any questions on this? I mean, we had multiple questions here this morning, and I may, if I don't get them here, I will bring up what people asked this morning. Um, but we had several questions this morning on this. No questions. No thoughts. Well, let me let me let me ask or uh, give you what one of the questions was this morning. How do we tell the difference between chastening or God just doing something? Because when bad things happen in life, you know, oh, the person got cancer. Well, you know, maybe it's because of such and such and such and such in life. And this, how do you figure that out? Because when you think about this, we're un- we're saved people, but we're still sinners. So when, when something happens that you go, wow, this is just you know something really bad from God, is he, is he challenging me as one of his children? Because remember, as children, Hebrews chapter 12 makes it very clear, he'll chasten us to bring us back to where we need to be at. So sometimes bad things are designed for us to go, I need to come back to God. But some things may be just there because God does certain things, and He is trying to magnify something in somebody else's life that they need to see. That you know, maybe you're not you're you're not sinning, but God wants you to see God in a different way, understand Him in a different format that you than you what you have before. Um, So you know, the the question is is how do you then tell is it punishment or the like? You really these times are designed as soul searching for you. Because sometimes what God will do is He'll reveal things to you and go, okay. I mean, for for Job, I mean, I think about Job, good man, only being ahead through difficulty because God's trying to teach the devil a lesson. But Job does reveal that he doesn't quite understand everything about God. You get to the end and God goes. Um, okay, you're, you're sitting here arguing with me. Let me just talk through a few things. Where were you when I did this and this and this and this and this? And where were you when I did this? And can you do this and this and this and this? And Job kind of goes, mm. you know, I put my hand in my mouth because I, I kind of overstepped my bounds. I mean, the, the punishment had already happened, the event had already happened, but it did help Job to see some things about God that he wouldn't see otherwise. So the question comes, when bad things happen in our life... Are they chastening where God's bringing us back from sin, trying to bring us back, or is it just him teaching us? And the answer is, you you know, this is why God has us consider what's going on. Think through to do an examination of what's going on in life. Uh, For unsaved people, you go, "Well, well, doesn't God chasten them? Well, he's not, they're not his children, but understand that the sin is their chastening. Romans 1 makes it very clear. He goes, okay. You want to go that way and make life fit when you step over these boundaries? Sure, go ahead, and try. Have a nice time. You know, I'll come back in a little bit and you know see where you're at and and uh, see if you're ready to you know go. Maybe this isn't a good idea. But that's what God does. He lets them go. He gives them. His Romans says he just gives them over. Fine. <laughs> you're going to try and make that fit. And um, that's God's punishment to them. So even though it might be li- like they're living however they want to live, and then their sin, uh, that sin is kind of God's judgment on them. He doesn't have to do mean, and, or from our perspective, difficult things to them, because they're already hurting themselves uh, by going this way. Um, so, yeah. So, that was one of the questions we had, because, you know, when, when bad things happen, does it, is it because of sin? Or, you, or is it God trying to teach something, and the answer is it's different in each situation for each person in that the time that it's happening so